Listener Production. Shares, Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. This used to be the mailbag extra. I had to drop extra because, frankly, doing it every single week. It's like, you know, the closing down sale that goes forever. That is it. This is the Motley Fool Money mailbag closing down sale, <laughs> which will finish at some point, maybe, possibly, eventually. But until it does, I am here. I am Scott Phillips. He is here. He is Andrew Page. Andrew Page Esquire, if you don't mind, because he owns one of the hottest properties on the internet, strawman.com. And strawman.com is a... Um, a uh, it's a private online it? investment club. Private online investment. I knew that. I knew that. I was on the tip of my tongue. How are you, sir? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Yep. It's been exactly about 15 minutes since we did the last episode, so I assume you haven't changed. Not Nothing's changed. News. Is that fair I've, had, I've had a coffee and stretched the legs, but uh, <laughs> still going well. Going strong. Had, How about I, you? I started I started with a coffee. I don't want to Coke Zero now. You know I'm partial to Coke Zero. Oh, mate, that stuff uh, will kill you. I'm also partial to not calling it Coke No Sugar, not for any other reason in my head. It's just always going to be Coke Zero. And I'm not doing it to be <laughs> deliberately painful. I have that. I, I am petty like that sometimes. Not this time. I just I just can't help myself. I just, yeah. yeah. Coke No Sugar. Coke well, no I guess sugar. I guess Coke artificial chemicals just didn't have the same ring about it. So no sugar was what they <laughs> as were. As opposed to one with sugar, which is yeah. artificial chemicals and sugar added. Yeah, that's true. This, this that's is, true. This that's is all artificial chemicals and water, so yeah. it's okay. Uh, how, how good a marketing strategy was the old secret ingredient? Oh yeah, I feel like the seven herbs and spices in the in the KFC. Eleven, just that little bit, of, exactly a little bit of a uh, little bit of mystery that makes it sound a bit more special than it might be. Do you know? Years ago, this is going way back to the early days of the internet. I remember the secret recipe was leaked. No, and I downloaded it. I've never, I've never bothered to make it. Um, <laughs> if I if I decide to have that, oh, it's just easier to buy. So the world it. the world has been deprived of Page Cola for a couple of decades. Is that what you're telling? Oh, me? sorry, not 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 the Coke ingredient, the KFC ingredient. So oh, the, the herbs, and spices. herbs and spices. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Or is it the way it's cooked? As they uh, oh, well, who knows? Who knows? Like, yeah, I guess we'll never know. Do you know we should we should mention by the way that the owner yeah. the franchise owner of KFC is mm-hmm. uh, on on the ASX. You can buy shares in it. Yes, yum. I don't know. I'm bringing up a US company, Collins Foods. That's part of it anyway. They're not. They're not. They don't. They don't have exclusive Australian rights, do they? But they're a. They're a franchisee or a franchise or. Oh, I thought it might have been. Well, I'm uh, maybe on that. I'm not right. They also own Taco Bell, which they're rolling out. Yep. I hate Taco. I not only do I hate Taco Bell as a restaurant, I hate Taco Bell as an idea. Have you had? Were you in the Omaha with me? Did we have Taco Bell together? So that was one of the first things that was sort of you know fresh off the plane. I thought, oh, Taco oh. Bell. I always hear about that. I like Mexican food. And like, it's no Chipotle yeah, Mexican Grill. Excellent. Yeah. Taco Bell. Yeah. About the worst takeaway I think I've ever, with 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 apologies to people listening who love Taco Bell. I think the worst takeaway, the worst fast food I've ever had. Is that, is that too stretching it too far? It, look, it'd be up there. I mean, here's the here's the thing though, right? So what are, are we talking? I don't know Taco Bell, the business that well, but there's mm-hmm. there's the business and there's the, the food. I think it's actually a really yes, interesting exactly. talking point. One of the most, <laughs> I've often used this as an example. I mean, if you could go back in time and you could only buy one share, it's very tempting, of course, to go look at some of the real tech stock successes. But I think that in in the top, you know, towards the top of your wish list, uh, if the other ones were for some reason taken, Domino's Pizza would have to be sort of one of the ones that were up there. In terms of like a business that sells pizza, it's done insanely well for shareholders over the long term. And even KFC, the the purveyors of the of the dirty bird, as it's sort of known uh, mm-hmm. colloquially, um, their their per share earnings have gone from seventeen cents to fifty seven cents from twenty fourteen to twenty twenty two. Their dividends yeah. almost tripled over over that that period. So it's got, you know, there's 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 knowing your niche, I suppose. And I don't think any of these are pretending to be uh, gourmet, you know, Michelin star kind of experiences. But they seem to be making money. Someone's someone's buying these things. Takes me in a different direction, mate, but on the same theme, which is KFC used to be KFC. Now it's Kentucky Fried Chicken again. Oh, you're joking! And they're kind of no. Have you not seen it? No. So they've got the Colonels back on the on the signage, and they they do the they call it this both. It's KFC, but they've got the Kentucky Fried Chicken livery kind of around the place. Uh-huh. Um, and what I love about that, to your, to your point about knowing your niche, is at some point someone at KFC thought, oh, you know what we should do? We should position KFC as a healthy alternative. And thankfully, they've kind of realised that. Actually, that's not why people. To your point about being called the dirty bird, right? No one's dropping the salad and having KFC as something that's equally healthy. Oh, you're not it going. Is, you're is, not going to Krispy Kreme to buy some carrot right? sticks, yeah? No. <laughs> exactly. And so it's kind of not. not I was going to say, oh, that's overly unhealthy. It probably is. But um, 
just that idea of kind of knowing your audience, right? Like, to, don't try and be something you're not. Mm-hmm. Be be the food they have when they want a bit of guilty pleasure or just a, you know, how good was the mashed potato? Do you ever have the mashed potato at KFC? I had it. So I remember good. loving it as a kid. I actually had it a I, couple I, years I ago, and it was like, oh, really? Oh, this is this is made from a powder, <laughs> isn't it? Whatever, whatever's left of a potato is not much in this. And the and the hot little tiny bread rolls. Yes, yes, they yep. were gold. Anyway, yep. my point is, you know, I think to your point, knowing your niche in both those different ways, right? So, you you are Kentucky Fried Chicken. The year the Colonel. That that's what people associate with. Yeah. Trying to get away from that was just I, honestly, I think it was. I thought it was dumb at the time, but I could have been wrong. In hindsight, I think we now would know it was dumb. It's just kind of own, owning it, right? own own who you are and what you do and how you do it, and just be that. And don't you're not everything to everybody. You're not going to get the health food nut. You're not going to get the you know whatever. But if people want KFC, they're going to get KFC. That's that's the beauty of it. Yeah, yeah. Frankly, even um, just to extend the, the the tangent, we're already into it, already distracting <laughs> ourselves. Um, I actually, as a general rule, I really love businesses that that focus on a pretty narrow niche. Yeah. And I think I think that's increasingly the opportunity. Speaking of technology stocks in that space, I mean the big stuff has been stitched up by the giants, mm. but there's plenty of little niche cases, in the B two B space or whatever, where it's just you know, like Google's just never going to get there. It's just the market's not big enough, but it still might be a multi you know hundred billion dollar market or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And there's a lot of really great, interesting small cap asx tech stocks that kind of fit that mold you know it's like well we do environmental monitoring and you know for mine sites or something that's kind of like it's it's just going to be a narrow niche but nevertheless one that's ripe with opportunity so uh, yeah go the niche i say and stay stay in your lane when businesses try to do Mm. too much and be everything to everyone uh, it's generally not doesn't work out well it's an awesome point mate i will add to that too and i will i'll make a suggestion you can tell me what you think but the only the only thing to think about in that not that it's bad even just as you think about it a business with a massive 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 potential market has lots of potential growth ahead of it if you are doing environmental monitoring for mine sites you just want to make sure you pick the right price for that sort of business yeah. I, I, I don't i don't i don't i have a feeling i know what business you're it's never going to be a trillion dollar mega cap right, right. and so you've got to be yeah. careful if, if you already own 85 percent of that market yes. then make sure you know that a the business is running for cash and b you're yeah. paying a price that allows for that 100%. don't don't buy that don't buy a pay a hyper growth price for a business that's 80 you know 85 percent of, of a tiny niche like that's pretty much done and that's great it can be fantastic yeah um, i'll give you an example actually one i don't own we have recommenders dicker data um, oh yeah great it's, little business it's in, it's in yeah. Yeah, right so it's in computer hardware peripherals software distribution right and that's ever going to be a certain size and they cleverly run this thing largely for cash and that's kind of just it makes insane a return sense. on equity of 40 percent right? you know steep staircase like earnings graph love it right yeah. and, and and so yeah and by the way like yeah is it trying to grow yes but it won't be massive so you don't you don't want to pay stupid prices for it but mm-hmm. it's been run for cash it's been run really nicely and doing a really good job so i think you know the the we we, got, we always get asked yeah how do you invest or how do you choose what stock and honestly the difference between amazon in 1997 and dicadata today are chalk and cheese yes right and so you want to now one is much 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 riskier one has much, much bigger upside potential. Could have, you know, yeah, who's the other alternative? Like 997, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Went broke yep. or almost broken. So you've got to be careful because they go either way. Um, but just, just you know, there's not only one type of company to buy, but accordingly, there's, no, there's more than one way to value a company or to think about the price you need to pay and the risk and reward you're, you're accepting. And just that, that matrix in your head as you kind of think about, you know, what size growth, what's the downside potential, the upside potential, how much am I paying? You need to kind of be able to mesh those together to get to a reasonable price to pay, mm-hmm. given the potential upside. There's a really great example of this, just to be controversial for a moment, because I know it divides investors, but you may have heard mm-hmm. of a company called Brainchip. Uh, BRN is, is the code. Yep. And this thing is, they haven't really made much revenue yet. They've only really just on the cusp of commercialization, but it's valued at over a billion dollars, mm. you know? And That's a th- lot of money. So, I mean, you know, the bulls will say <laughs> that they're doing um, specialized chips for AI and edge computing and this kind of stuff. And they've got a new way of going about it. And obviously the addressable market is just absolutely gargantuan if, if they could capture a reasonable share of it. My point with it has been, I've been making it for a while, but I feel a little bit validated in it because I was saying this when it was $1.60. It was just like, well, even if that comes true, at the time it was valued at close to $2 billion. It's sort of like the market already expects incredible things. So even if they deliver half as good as you expect, which would, by the way, still be an incredibly outstanding result and a wonderful Australian success story, it's kind of like unless the market is is continuing to value that at eye-watering multiples years down the track, 
there's very, very easy chance that you can be right about the company and totally wrong about the investment. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, we should hey, answer um, some questions. <laughs> I was going to give this a mailbag episode. Uh, you know what, though? If we did go straight into the questions, our listeners would be confused. They wonder what podcast they're listening to. So we've just, we've just proven that we are the right podcast. You are in the right place. And we're going to ask and answer a question from Shane, who says, Dear Scott and Andrew, I love the pod machine. Just quietly around. One more vote for pod machine. Yep, uh, appreciate how you answer them. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate how you answer the mailbag questions explaining out the basic logic and then your opinions without confusing the two thank you mate i'd like to hear your logic and opinions on australian dividend etfs australia mentions a vhy and syi are the two codes australia seems to be a haven for dividends and by buying a bunch of companies who pay dividends through an etf rather than purchasing and monitoring individual companies seems to be a less risky passive way to gain slightly more than the market average dividend payout can you critique the logic of my statement and provide an overview of the negatives associated with dividend ETFs versus buying the individual stocks contained within? Secondly, and probably more complexly, is around how ETFs are priced or more pointedly, can a value assessment be done on an ETF's stock price? Is it simply the sum of the parts of the stock contained within or is there more at play, e.g. speculation built into the price of the stocks contained within the ETF and then into the stock price of the ETF itself? Well, I've gone down a rabbit hole, but I'm looking to understand if there's a way a value investor can assess if an ETF is over or undervalued. Or is it so minute that for the average investor, it's not worth the time and they should continue being passive and lazy with a big smile. Mm. General advice only. Appreciate the time and education you both give to us all. Full kids in our straw hats. Thanks, <laughs> Shane. I like that. I like that idea. Um, so, Ram, let's start at the very, very beginning. Your opinions on Australian dividend ETFs, please. I mean, it's a big term. It, it, it's always my frustrating answer. It, it depends. It depends. Um, <laughs> I, I often think there's... I'm, I'm very wary as, of what they, they call the yield trap. And so it goes something like this. You're an investor who puts a high weighting on the, the value of a regular, attractive, high-yield return, and a lot of investors will be in that, that camp. So obviously, you just you look for the highest yield and you buy buy that. And with these ETFs, they need certain liquidity requirements, so they probably take the top 500. What are the best yields? And, and I buy that. The, the trouble is, is that, um, well, yields are calculated on what was paid last year. And so there's plenty of companies that cut their dividends altogether. I mean, Qantas did it for years. It happens all the time. AMP did it, you know. And as, at, at a point in time, you'd be looking at, at, at your screen and saying, wow, this is offering 8.3% fully franked. Isn't this great? Well, it turned out that the real yield was by the zero or much lower than that for many, many years. Um, so you, you often when yields are very high, they're, they're high for a reason. Um, so then you sort of have the the layer of you need to put someone in charge of this to say, well, I will pick mm. the stocks and I yeah, will look right. out for that. Now that that yeah. that makes perfect sense. But then again, you've got this key person risk or this this counterparty risk in the sense, well, maybe they're a complete dullard. Maybe they don't know what the hell they're doing. Maybe they <laughs> chuck it all into Telstra and it goes down 40%. I don't know. You know, it's mm. something mm. it it's so there's there is what we've always sort of said about ETFs and why we prefer the passive ones is it's just the guarantee of the average because no one's trying to stock pick. They're just buying the average by definition. So why I say it depends is, well, what's the actual, actual strategy? Who's picking it? What's their track record? And the final thing, sorry, mate, it's a rambling answer, is that what Go often it, this is, when you're looking at longer term timeframes, what might be a bit counterintuitive is that you get situations where, yes, you fulfilled your, your desire of getting a regular and attractive yield on your investment. Mm. But when you look at what you might've got just through an ASX All Ordinaries ETF, uh, lower dividends, but much more capital growth. In fact, if I look over the last five years and compare the the All Lords to to the VHY ETF, one's up thirty percent, one's up twenty percent. Now that doesn't. We should include dividends reinvested in both cases to to make sure it's an oranges or apples with apples comparison. Um, but I suspect over that period that you've still got an outperformance in in the the one that that didn't bias dividend paying stocks. And yet probably still paid a 3 or 4% fully or mostly franked yield as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's all that. And then finally, in trying to individually value it, it's a, it's a near impossible task. I mean, in theory, it's easy. You just do an analysis of every single company and then appropriate, make sure you're right in every single <laughs> one and then appropriately weight that in the same way that the ETF is weighted and there's your intrinsic value mm-hmm. for the ETF. But that's, ex- yeah. I mean, it, it the, the 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 cumulative small errors in all of that is going to make it completely meaningless. So, 
I don't know. What's my so what, mate? Help help me out here. I, I think it's probably it's probably <laughs> if you really do value dividends and they've taken as passive approach as they can probably take, it's probably not a bad idea. Um, just note that on the Australian context, you're probably going to end up with like a forty percent weighting to the big four banks and a few other ones. So it might not actually be as low risk as you think because they are more systemically related. They're correlated. You know, there's not really a world in which one bank. If, if there's any sort of issues in the in the sector, they're all likely to sort of suffer. So you, you don't actually get as many benefits of diversification as well. I don't know, mate. That's that's a lot to lay out there. What what would you add? No, that's a that's a fantastic summary, mate, of of what can be a kind of a mid, not quite active, not quite passive ETF. Um, it's passive in the sense that it tracks a passive index. Well, sorry, okay. Passive in the sense, of, no, sorry. Let me. Let me. I, I misspoke. It's passive in the sense it tracks an index. Right. The index itself is a combination of passive selection with active inputs. And I'll, I'll explain what that means. And you're right to talk about the fact that once you start trying to track active choices, you are doing what we would ne- normally recommend against, which is trying to pick winners. So let me, I'll, I'll explain. This is the, so this, this uh, I just picked the Vanguard high yield one. It tracks a FTSE, a FTSE uh, high yield index. Mm-hmm. Let me explain mm-hmm. how it's created. Let me read this from the um, FTSE uh, ground rules document. The constituents, that is the companies, are ranked according to each security's 12-month forecast dividend yield sourced from the institutional broker's estimate system. So you're taking broker's forecasts for a start, so just keep that in mind, with companies not forecast to pay dividends in the next 12 months being eliminated. For the review... Universe constituents that do not have a forecast dividend per share values, they'll use an independent, additional independent source. So not necessarily the same, uh, the same uh, source for all those companies. Companies with the highest forecast yield are included in the index until approximately half of the float-adjusted market capitalization of the eligible universe is reached. Now that's not necessarily a terrible methodology if you're going to do this. The question for the listener and the person who wants to think about whether this index is right is does that necessarily give you good long-term performance and that is so firstly using the forecast from some system plus forecast from other systems if that system doesn't have a forecast for the company then you go kind of buying up roughly half of the companies that have a dividend and you're trying to get the best half if you if you wanted that this is a perfect methodology if you said show me the stuff show me the companies that are you know more likely to have a higher dividend than, than the others this is going to give you an above average yield almost by definition. There are enough smart people doing enough smart things to make this work. So I, th- I don't think mm. it's an unreasonable way to capture exactly what you're trying to capture. No, not Your at all. Your point, Ram, is mm. 100% valid, which is, are you really sure this is what you want? Mm. Because frankly, 40% of this ETF is in banks. Another 25% is in miners. So two thirds are in two industries. You've got to ask yourself whether you think that's a safe and an appropriate way to invest your money. Normally, we'd say ETFs, you want to be index-based, you want to be diversified, low cost. Does this meet the diversification test? I'd argue it doesn't. Mm. Now, the, the ASX itself is massively overweighted those two indices. This doubles that, or not quite doubles exactly, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. This, this magnifies that to an even larger extent where two industries are 66% of your investment dollars. Now, maybe they're going to pay good dividends. Maybe the share prices might even go up. Or maybe they won't. Um, over the last five or so years, up until that January, you and I spoke at, what was it? Equity Mates um, a while back. Mm-hmm. And we looked at the bank share prices. And I think of all of the banks, I think a couple had gone backwards and a couple were basically flat over the previous yep. five years. Yep. Now, think about that in the context of the yield. And ask yourself, is high yield enough? If I could get market beating returns with a high yield, I'd take in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I don't know that you should be planning for high yields in and of themselves in a percentage way being enough. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm both talking my book, but also very specifically, um, I'll tell you what we did instead because it's more important than, than whether I'm talking my book or not. We have a service called Everlasting Income at The Motley Fool. It pays less as a yield than this ETF. Outright, I'm happy to say that, outright, right? Mm. Now, from a, from a marketing perspective, that's madness. From an investment portfolio management perspective, I think it's not quite genius, but it's the right way to do it because we're saying we don't want 40% of our members' money invested in the banks and 25% in miners. We don't want them taking that sort of risk where they might get a bit more of a yield, but they're risking either their capital going nowhere or backwards. We don't think that's a reasonable or safe degree of diversification. 
So I, I love dividends myself. I love getting them. I love them hitting my bank account. Uh, I love high yielding companies where I think they're attractive to buy, but I don't love these ETFs for exactly that reason. You, you, yes, high yields are attractive. Yes, get as much dividend as you can reasonably get without taking silly risk or jeopardizing your capital. I think in this case, too many investors, and with, with respect to you, Shane, it's, it's a great question, but too many investors are focusing on the yield, not on the total return, including what might happen to your capital. Um, but yeah. Shane, when it comes to when it comes to the value assessment, mate, uh, to where Andrew's already answered it, um, I- ignore it. What, what I what why why I do like the question though is because for for index based ETFs, you're getting the index right. That's why you're doing it. But if you're trying to buy a cybersecurity ETF or a oil ETF or a gold ETF or something else, then you actually need to do that work before you buy the ETF, right? Because there's no other way to know whether or not you're getting good value. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked before, Andrew, about the company and the share price being different. When we talked about some of the small caps and the, and the example you gave about the, uh, the, the mine site, you know, environmental um, uh, management or, or um, analysis. When you think about these ETFs, if I buy a cybersecurity ETF, the theme might be right, but am I getting a good price? I don't know. And even if you, you need to know which companies are in there to know whether those companies are going to win or whether there's a good price. That's mm-hmm. my issue with active ETFs generally is what are you buying? Not, not just what's the label, which companies are you getting? Are they attractively priced or not? Have they got good futures or not? Um, those things you need to have done if you're trying to take active bets. If you're taking passive bets with ETFs, which is my absolute preference, then you're just dollar cost averaging into a very broad, low cost market. I think that makes a whole lot of sense. So Shane, with a, with a broad ETF, don't bother because it's just the sum total of everything else. Uh, with a, an active ETF, you absolutely better be doing this work because otherwise you don't know what you're getting and how likely you are to do well from here. And that, to my mind, would be abdicating responsibility as an investor. You really shouldn't be, buying, from my mind, buying any passive ETF unless you know what's in it, how well they're valued, and therefore whether the ETF itself represents good value. Another another thing I always encourage income investors to consider is is look beyond the yield. I mean, really, what, what mm. matters here? Do you want to maximize the yield as, as is sort of quoted and delivered on an annual basis? Or do you want to maximize the cash return like the flow of cash that you're going to get over the life of the investment. A, a good example here is probably something like CSL. Like no one in their right mind would call that a, a dividend stock. I mean, you've, you've always <laughs> yes, been able absolutely. to get it at one or one and a half yeah. percent of, of, yeah. of it as a, as a yield. So back in 2014, you could have bought it for roughly 65 bucks and yeah, about, about one point something percent yield. Today, it was where it was paying $1.20 back then. It's paying $3.22 per share today. So your nice. yield on your purchase price, now this isn't exactly the right way to think about it, but your yield is nevertheless 5%. And I would wager that even though you bought a lower yielding income stock, the the cash return, the cash flow you have generated with CSL um, is probably a lot better than it would have been for other quote unquote income companies who just went sideways for 10 years. And I mean, I'm not even talking about the capital gain that came with CSL. It's definitely not 65 bucks today. It's over 300. <laughs> so, you know, it just, right. it, it's, it's, you, it, what am I trying to say? You can actually have a bit of the best of, of both worlds. And, and even if income is your priority, growth is really important to, to that. So um, generally speaking, you're seeing a very high yielding company. It's because the growth is just, well, certainly not expected by, by the market. And that could be much worse over the longer term. Perfect. Let's move on to a question from Adam. He says, hi, lads. Hope you had a nice break over Christmas. As I sit here looking over the bay at Noosa and listening to your pre-recorded podcast, insert rant here. With all the talk about large amounts in super and limiting the total, it had me thinking, can you have too much in superannuation at the start of retirement? The first $1.7 million in pension phase is tax-free on earnings. But anything above this is held in accumulation phase and subject to a 5% tax on all earnings. If you had an extra $1 or $2 million in accumulation, is it better to cash this out and invest in your own name in an ETF, whereas the first 20K is tax-free, and then $19,000, 90%, sorry, till $45,000 in income? My question, I guess my question is, can you have too much in super in retirement? Brackets, nice problem to have, <laughs> close bracket. Thanks, Adam. I'm going to suggest you think it's a nice problem to have, Ram, and uh, you wouldn't worry about it. Am I, am I right? Am I, I think it's the absolutely best problem to have. I mean, any, any, <laughs> it's perfectly sensible to try and minimise your tax through ever legal means that's, that's sort of possible, I suppose. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you'd have, I mean, you'd have to do the sums on the your exact situation, the rest of it. I suspect leaving it in as much as you can in super is the best way to go. But 
I mean, it, look, if ever you find yourself, have I got too much money? I would just say there's a lot of great charities out there and I'm one of them. So I'll <laughs> send you my Bitcoin wallet address and sh- shoot, some, shoot some value through because <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's ever a problem. <laughs> the kind of problem uh, yeah, I'd like to have, put it that way. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Adam, oh, mate, it, it's, it's, a, it's a hard one. Um, yeah, I, and look, you know, you want to if you can take advantage of tax-free thresholds, you might as well. Um, so I guess that makes that makes some sense. Um, yeah, I, gosh, super is generous though, isn't it? Like the amount that they let you have. Gracious. Like I just again, not to get on a bit of a rant here, but the whole system was designed to take the burden off the public purse for for um, looking after retirees. That that was the yeah. point. It's yeah. it's kind of it's done that. It's actually done a really good job of that. But it, it's also been. An, credible tax haven for very wealthy people <laughs> yes. and you kind of think when you're getting that kind of income in retirement it's just like gosh it's generous to only pay five percent on that like that's that's very yeah. generous yeah uh, yeah look adam i guess the answer is probably yes you could take some out to, to where the earnings are tax-free at some point i mean you've got to then play the game of if you earn too much income then your tax rate goes up and then how much do you pay on that would you have been better leaving that in super because now you're earning too much money outside super um, I, there, there is no, there is no perfect answer, mate, because we can't know the future. Um, generally speaking, I guess it makes some sense to take some out and put it in your own name and take advantage of the higher tax-free threshold for individuals. Um, I guess that makes sense. Uh, by the way, you won't like this, Adam, but my my proposal to fix super is simply to tax all retirement income at marginal rates with a tax-free threshold above uh, above the level of the super anyway, about the level of pension by ten or twenty grand, and make to give some benefit over and above for for saving and saving the public purse and all that kind of stuff. Um, in which case, there would be no separate tax-free threshold to the super payments that all be included in the same thing, mate, which you won't like, and I apologise for that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't. I think it's a nice problem to have. Maybe some outside super makes some sense to, mm-hmm. to minimise tax. Yep. Hey, um, one from Genevieve, mate, who says, Hi, Scott and Andrew. I very much appreciated the fresh and interesting content over the festive season. Genevieve, you need to get out more. Uh, especially the long-awaited bi- oh, Bitcoin episode. Hey, hey. The podcast at pickings are a little slim at that time of year, and she, she says, and your show was a standout exception to the recaps and rebroadcasts. So thank you. Now my question, which is the hypothetical scenario about portfolio rebalancing. I like this. Mm. Imagine you are fortunate to have picked a speculative small cap med tech stock, which is now up over a thousand percent since you bought it. I'm going to assume, Genevieve, you're not hypothetically talking. I hope you're not. I hope you've made that sort of money. Your thesis Sounds is like not broken. <laughs> Your thesis is not broken, she says, and you don't think it's significantly overvalued given its potential. But there is still a high degree of uncertainty in regards to its future. It may well drop 50%, but could also double in price, she says. Your main concern is that it is now about 50% of your total portfolio because of its increase in value, and you strongly feel trimming is necessary. On the other hand, you don't feel you have any better or new ideas at this time, so you're not sure what you want to do with the capital if you partially sell now. Perhaps beef up your holdings in one of your low-cost ETFs, she says. What would be your approach, assuming low liquidity issues and that brokerage fees are low? Would you sell gradually as the price rises? What would be the maximum percentage you'd be comfortable with for any one speculative stock in your portfolio? Keep up the great work. Cheers, Genevieve. Ram, I'll let you go first. This one, you're a ProMedicus holder and a big fan. Gen- Tell us your story. Gen- Genevieve, that's such an outstanding question and one I've, I've really wrestled with. So I guess in theory, what you would always do is, is at a, over a certain period, you would, you would come back and look at the weightings of your portfolio and say, how would I build it if I was building it today? The reality is I've got so much capital at my disposal that should be spread uh, according to my highest conviction and the best value. Those those two things are really going to set you know where the weighting is. So in other words, the, the the more undervalued it is, and the higher quality it is, or the more conviction you have, the higher the weighting you should have. Now there's no exact right number, but they're they're definitely the dimensions you look at. And it's a great A problem to have. You buy something, maybe it starts out at a you know five percent weighting, and three years later you wake up and it's now fifty percent of your portfolio. That is a great problem to have. Presuming of course that 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 weighting hasn't entirely been a result of everything else in your portfolio crashing, but rather the, <laughs> the, the incredible growth of, of that company. So I, well, well you know, <laughs> I'm happy to mention it. I, I bought shares in ProMedicus at 85 cents years ago. I was actually at your kitchen table, Scott, when we were working Hashtag together. humble brag. Yes, humble brag. That. Well, don't think yeah. I'm a genius because <laughs> what I did was exactly over the concerns that Genevieve raised. It was just mm-hmm. like, well, it's not like I 
didn't like the company. In fact, the company is mm. today in better shape than it's ever been. It just continues to execute and it's just, the thesis just working out brilliantly. But it just, and, and, and the valuation, can obviously, just logically, the higher the price got, all else being equal, the valuation got worse off. But it was the main factor for me was, my goodness, this is, you know, 20, then 30, and it just became bigger and bigger and bigger. So I, I thought it just prudent to to trim a little and thought it was very clever. Now, I took that money, I invested it elsewhere, different, you know, rates of success and failure. Mm. But... I would have been much, much better off if I had not done anything. It's actually, I often talk about the things that haunt you at night is as an investor is not some of the losses you've made, it's the missed opportunities that you've had. And so I don't want to put a number on it, but if I had not sold a single Prometicus share, I'd today be looking at a at a holding that would be very close to seven figures, right? And I'm not saying I put a lot in. It's just, well, it's 65 bucks now and it was 85 cents. Like it just it just went up a, a huge, huge, huge amount. And, and so objectively, for the benefit of hindsight, in that particular instance, was it the right thing to do? Uh-uh, no, absolutely not. Um, but there are, other, there are parallel universes where there was, you know, the, the price came down and, I, and it w- would have been smart to be opportunistic, lock some profits in, reallocate, rebalance, ensure that the risk is low. So this is a very long-winded way of saying it's hard, um, but I still probably, yeah. on a, at least on a theoretical basis, I think you don't want to overthink it. I mean, if you've said I would need to have a 10% weighting and you're going to sell and buy if it gets to 9% or 11%, it's just you'd be, be wasting a bunch of time and money by doing that. But when it does get significantly out of whack, I don't think it's entirely silly to take a little bit off the table because there are plenty of counterexamples where something just got hot. I'll give you, I'll give you another example of mine. I bought some shares in a company called Pointera at a ridiculously low price, mid mid sort of cent kind of range. And it got to 90 cents, you know, and it's sort of like, I did actually sell a bunch, not at the top, but certainly on, on the way up. And now it's back at 20 cents again. So there are, there are other examples like, oh my goodness, that was exactly the right right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just, I'd urge you to focus on that conviction element, on that value element. Don't overthink it. But just un- understand that the bigger the percentage it holds, <laughs> the bigger the risk that you have, even even if your conviction is high. I'm going to ask you a question, mate, before I answer Genevieve's question, my thoughts. Um, you talk about, you know, what you lay awake, missing the opportunities that, that you didn't take, right? The, what Prometicus could have been had you had you not sold some down. Yeah. I, I wonder, that that's true for you, but I wonder in, if we reversed that and said Prometicus then went to $40 and back to 85 cents. Mm. Now what do you now what do you regret more? I'm yes. going to assume you would regret having held them too long yep. and not trimmed uh, far more than you would have regretted missing the upside of, of an equivalent circumstance. Well, here's so the is, thing: is there it a did, it, your- yeah, it didn't hurt me. I got I'm not I'm not crying yeah. foul here. Like I did extremely yep. well at Prometicus. <laughs> it really enabled me to start straw man. It was just it was a real it was hey it's why I'm here right. This is nice, <laughs> why well I invest. Well um, so so it's great. It could have would have should have. I think perfect is the enemy <laughs> of the good in investing. Yes, so obviously with hindsight, I mean with hindsight, I just would have gone back to 2011 and put it all in Bitcoin, you know, and made 10 trillion percent. Like so so you you'll never you'll never nail it perfectly. So I think you make a, a really a really good point. It is it is frustrating when you think, "Oh, it could have been." But is that is that regret as bad as it would have been had you as, mm-hmm. as you said gone back to 85 cents and probably not. So and that's, right. my, that's my general thought, Genevieve. Um, thanks, thanks for the, the answer, Andrew. I, I, I'm, in that, I'm in that camp. I mean, if you look back now and look at every company that, that went up 10,000% you, you didn't buy, you, you know, there, there's a list longer than my arm. As much as I think I'm half good at picking stocks, there is always going to be more stocks I didn't own that I owned that went up mm-hmm. by definition. Because as Andrew said on, I think it was must have been Friday, there's 2,000 companies in the ASX, right? And so uh, lotto style, law of averages, random numbers, whatever, something's going to go up more than the stuff I own. And if I regretted every one of those, I'd sit in the corner and never do anything because just, you know, fetal position stuff. I was like, I can't believe I missed that one. And I missed that one. And I missed that one. And I missed that one. Mm-hmm. The question really is, was it likely I was going to be able to pick it in the first case? Or was it just random chance or just sheer law of large numbers, which means I couldn't own everything every, anyway. Otherwise, I'd have an ETF and I wouldn't have enough in that one stock. And the answer is, of course, yes. Um, and so I guess I say that because, to my mind, I am very much in the again you said this before, Andrew, the Warren Buffett thing of not going back to square one. Mm. You never ever ever want to go back to square one. And the bird in the hand is genuinely worth two in the bush to, to throw some metaphors and cliches together. Yep. Um, I the first I would, rule is survive. 
right? And yeah. so you've done really well. Congratulations. Take the money. You know, you're on deal or no deal. You, you, you're gambling 50 grand for the chance to win 100 grand. I mean, some people are just inveterate gamblers. I'm taking the money, you know, because would I like 100 grand? Yes. Would I risk 50 grand to make 100 grand? Hell no. If you gave me $50,000 right now and said, oh, if I had 50 in the back pocket, Andrew said, look, tell you what, I'll toss a coin. If it's heads, you lose everything. If it's tails, you get 100 grand. What do you want to do? I'm saying, well, no, I've got 50 grand. Like, I'm not stupid. I'll, I'll take the money I've got. Thanks mm-hmm. very much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would I would say that. And particularly, Genevieve, what I like about your question is you the way you describe the style of company. You talk about it being a speculative stock in your portfolio. My portfolio was massively overweight Berkshire Hathaway and Solpats. Massively overweight. Um, I think... Berkshire is about half of my US portfolio and it's probably, I think my US portfolio is about half my total. Give or take, these are rough numbers. So Berkshire is probably about a quarter of my, my portfolio. I own Solpats and Brickworks. They're effectively kissing cousins. Uh, they might be under 20% of my Australian portfolio, something like that. Like I, 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 I said before, people, some people know they're stuffed at decimal points. Like it's just not that big a deal for me. I'm, like I'm going to invest regularly and just let it do its thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not major in the minor. So I don't know. People like, how can you not know? I just, I don't. Um, so I am I am way overweight those two. They are not speculative companies. They are bedrock positions. I have massively high long-term conviction in their businesses. And when I say that, I, I will also make a point not to not to distinguish it necessarily from the company you might be talking about or Andrew mentioned, but to say that the conviction I have is based on actual fundamental cash flows and reasonable valuations. We don't say Prometicus can't go on a 10 bag from here, but a lot has to go right for it to earn that valuation. And it might. It might be the Amazon of 1997, as we mentioned before. So I'm not saying it can't. All I'm saying is there's, there's one thing to have conviction in a $2 online commerce business that's selling books, right? That might one day be worth something. There's another to say this cash generating machine has been generating cash for 100 years. It's probably going to for another 100 years. And so the, the range of outcomes is relatively small. That's, that's a higher, should be a higher Degree of conviction by definition. I don't think you disagree with that, Andrew. Um, yes. So you know that. So, so I'd start there. Uh, honestly, mate, I am more than happy. If, if my Berkshire position was doubled, I wouldn't care. Um, if the share price doubles, I'd be very happy actually. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, but if but I've got some two, three, four, five percent positions, and if they doubled, I'd probably sell some of them. Yeah, I think I think fifty percent is way too high personally for any non absolute absolute bedrock. Absolute bedrock company. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, if I was over ten or twelve percent, I'd probably be selling. So that's and for a speculative stock matter, probably five percent. Well, don't because again, your point for Genevieve, it could halve. It could and the thing is, if it is Prometic or something else, it could halve and halve and halve again, and still be on a P of more than the market average. Yeah. So there is a lot of downside, a lot of upside too. Do you want to risk half your portfolio on that? on being right no no not not for me yeah i mean look it it, it depends on the on the business you know yeah. i i think oh. the, the 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 good thing about sort of keeping the weighting i guess reasonable or just mm. consistent is let's say that your target allocation for this particular company was was 10 percent for a round number mm. and uh every time it got to 15 percent, it's not a wholesale thing you just sell out of the whole lot no just maybe just keep it at 10 percent and let's say it keeps going up. Well, I mean, you're still you're still winning, right? <laughs> you're still getting exposure to that. It's just that you haven't lumped too much sort of eggs in in that one basket and allowed that rise to reweight things inappropriately. You'll regret that's what happened with me and Prometicus. And yes, it turned out in that particular instance I regretted it. But as again to highlight the point, it's still been great for me. So you, Do you regret you, it, or it's just sad? I mean, I, oh, I regret says I did the wrong thing. No, I, I, uh, that's what I'm trying to check. No, it's 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 just one of those emotional if only. Yes, yes, you know, yes, oh, like you you yeah. can't. Promote wish, everything yeah. you've missed, but but Correct. there are things that you like when when you buy it for a particular investment thesis, and that thesis mm-hmm. plays out perfectly. Like you know that was and and yeah. and you did overthink the valuation. That's the kind of thing that that hurt more. This is like I bought some specy and just happened my numbers came up and I got lucky. It's <laughs> sort of one like I was exactly what I was hoping would be able to happen, and they did. And I decided I'd be clever and take a little bit of a profit. So it kind of it does it does sort of you know you think oh darn it that yeah. that could have been really nice, but it, but it was still really nice. And um, uh, as you as we said, there could, there's an alternate reality out there where it didn't play out that way, and mm-hmm. and I, the regret could have been greater. So can I say, mate, on on, on your behalf, uh, not because I'm trying to be nice, you, you played that perfectly. That well, that's, that's exactly <laughs> not quite. no 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 no. That, that, my, my point my point is, despite the outcome, you know, we we talk about the right the right process and, and the right or the wrong outcome. You can have the wrong process and have the right outcome. You can use a dartboard. And pick Fortescue at, at forty cents, and you say, "Oh, look, the right the right outcome. I'm a genius." No, no, it was the wrong process. You got lucky. Mm. You can have the right process. You can pick a company, and unbeknownst to you, it could be a 
Not, not, even, not even unreasonable fraud, just such an outright fraud. It could be some malfeasance inside the business that just brings you undone for no good reason. That's the right process and the wrong outcome. Sometimes you get the right process and the right outcome. Sometimes you get the wrong process and the wrong outcome. But I guess I, I, I'm just, I guess I'm just making the point that you know the as a portfolio management, in my personal view, you may, excuse me, you may disagree with me. In my personal view, you did everything perfectly right. That's exactly what you should be doing. And yes, you left some money on the table, but in a different universe, Prometheus crashed again. You're glad you sold out. Yeah. And that's yeah again not going back to square one, surviving. Um, you know the the it's it's an <laughs> let's use another pageism. It's an asymmetric outcome. Yeah. You know, did, did you leave some money on the table? Yes. Would you like that money? Yes. Have you actually got cold, hard cash though? Yes. yes. And can they take that away from you? Hell no. Mm. That's that's the beauty of it, right? Once you take it off the table, they can't have it back. Mm. It is, it, there's a reason that there's a cliche of two in the hand, uh, you know, bird in the hand, but two in the bush. Yeah. Because you've got to go get those birds, right? And if you don't get them, then you've got nothing. And so I, I just I just think it's, you know, we've got to be careful we don't let greed, not that you are, I'm, again, I'm giving you a, a wrap. You didn't let greed get in the way of sensible portfolio management. Sometimes you'll leave money on the table. Yeah. Sometimes you'll save yourself before. If you'd sold after 150 bucks rather than taking your block shares and, and letting that you know fall, sometimes just take your money off the table. Don't look at your horse in the mouth. Insert cliche metaphor quote here. Um, I, I think you've played it perfectly for what it's worth. As a, as a strategy, in this case, you could have made more money by hanging on. In a different universe, you, you save money by not hanging on, but the process I think you got right. Just to put some a bit of context around that strategy as well, and before anyone makes the dire mistake of thinking that, that I'm some legendary stock picker, there's there's plenty of other losses in in <laughs> the portfolio. So I'm always happy to talk about ProMedic as you can believe it. <laughs> That's right. But I'd also, I guess I, I try and defend that by sort of saying mm-hmm. that the, that's, I mean, there's there's a million different ways to skin the cat, but as we've often yep. talked about, I do like small caps, I do like growth. But you kind of, if you go in that space, you actually need some big returns. It's a very, it's a very, um, when I look at my average total returns, everything included from, from the dawn of time, it, it averages out really nicely, but it's kind of like probably the top 10% of stocks that have done all the heavy lifting. And that's an interesting, um, yeah, observation i think in this in the sense that that's actually quite common quite quite normal in fact even if you want to talk about the all ordinaries index or the dow jones or the s&p 500 when you look back we always talk about this long-term average of about 10 percent and um and the rest of it but really if you went back 10 years and you took out just the top three businesses out of an index mm-hmm. of 500 stocks, yeah, yeah, the yeah. difference would blow your yeah. socks. I, I don't know mm-hmm. exactly what it is off the top of my head, but it's like, it's massive. It's, it's absolutely huge. So this is also a lesson in when you're, you, there is something to be said for letting your winners run. If you're talking about a very established blue chip, low growth stock, I think you have to be a little bit more prudent on, on the weighting. But when you're actively pursuing a growth mm-hmm. strategy, you're, you're just not if you if you lock in every 10 20% gain it's just not going to be enough to offset the others that that aren't going to do well just statistically this is this is hard investing yeah. at this end of the market so <laughs> so that's why i just make that point again that while you don't want to ignore it and it is prudent absolutely to sort of trim and adjust as as things go on i think for some companies you really can overthink it and, and you've got to be humble in your valuation because you are talking mm. about for these companies, the value is predicated on cash that you expect to come in in five, in year five, mm. six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and, and beyond. And so <laughs> that's 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 a long way out into the future. And you need I don't you 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 need to you need to give these things time to play out. And if they play out the way that you think, the, the, as Charlie Munger says, the gains, the big gains are made in the waiting. That's mm. that's where they are. And if you're prosecuting this strategy, you just don't want to be too clever and trying to adjust everything and go mm. turn decimal places in your valuation because it's just not going to work out for you. You're going to, you're going to find that you die the death of a thousand cuts for the sixty percent of your portfolio that might go down. You know, ten, fifteen, twenty percent. Those odd twenty percent gains in there just aren't going to make up for it. So just fit fit your approach into your broader strategy. I guess is is, is what I'm saying. Yep, love it. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Uh, mate, we got a question about this, a similar thing last time, but I'm going to ask this one because it's just an interesting context uh, for the question. It's an ETF question, and Chris says, 
Hi, Scott and Andrew slash Ram slash Rampage. A question for the podcast machine, please. Oh, two ticks. I have been investing since January 2020, and boy, what a ride it has been. I had the highs of my first investment climbing over 10% uh, between Jan and Feb, only for it to come crashing down with COVID. What I managed timing. to keep dollar cost. Yeah, I managed to keep dollar cost averaging. Well done. During Excellent. 2020 to 2022, although not as greatly as I would have liked, given wage cuts, etc. I am now taking the time to pause and have a good look at my portfolio. Now that I've figured out what kind of investor temperament I have, I'm just going to stop there, mate, because I love the fact Chris is doing this kind of self investigation. Right, started on a particular journey, three years in. Actually, am I doing the right thing? Is that the am I the person I thought I was, or which sort of investor have I become? That in itself, super love it, love useful. It, love it. Yep. Chris it's says a one in particular. It is. It is one in particular. I've been dollar cost averaging into since January 2020 is the Vanguard Diversified High Growth ETF. Yes, insert grown here, says Chris. We have talked about that ETF before. I'm considering scrapping it for the Vanguard Australian Shares Index Fund, which is the VAS is the code, as the diversified high growth performance against the benchmark hasn't been great. And also, I'm a dividend investor. And while the dividends are okay, they're also not great. I'm 37, so I still have the benefit of compounding time despite any losses in selling to restructure my portfolio. Thank you so much for your podcast and the hilarious rants and tangents. Full on from Chris. Like we need the well, encouragement. I'll, I'll first swing at this one and then I'll, I'll give you a go. Um, Chris, a couple of thoughts. Firstly, you don't have to sell the current ETF to start a new one. You can do, and arguably, if you think you have a better idea, you should, because there's no point having money in, a, in an inferior idea. But as you think about the change, you can simply start allocating new money towards a new investment, particularly if you dollar cost everything into, into an ETF. So don't, don't think you need to change horses midstream, particularly if you're not sure or you're wanting to let it go. You can start building one while the other stays there. Eventually, if you decide, you can sell the rest or all of it and move it across. So just, just think about, you know, you, life is long. You've got many years to go uh, and you can choose at a point in time. So that makes a lot of sense. Secondly, just to repeat for people who don't know this one, a diversified high growth ETF sounds spectacular. It's a misnomer. Uh, this is my least favorite Vanguard ETF because of the, the name. I think the name is, um, I won't say misleading because misleading sounds like it's intentional. Uh, it's an oxymoron it not, to some degree, isn't it? Yeah, it's got bonds and property and stuff. It just, it's just not the sort of, it's diversified, yes. Is it high growth? I mean, maybe depending on what your benchmark is, is it higher than something else, I guess. Uh, is it a great ETF for long-term investors that are like want to maximize their returns? Probably not. So it sounds attractive. It sounds good. It ticks all those boxes. But it's an index. It's an ETF. And it's diversified. It's high growth. Tick, tick, tick. Of course, I'll invest in that one. It's incredibly popular, Chris. You are far from on your Pat Malone. Um, heaps of people invest in this one. It's not terrible. Uh, but I actually agree with your interest in looking at the Vanguard Australian Shares Index Fund instead. Over the long, And by the way, you talk about the fact that the high growth hasn't done as well against the benchmark almost by definition because of those bonds that we've talked about and the cash element and that kind of stuff. So you're absolutely right. If you are prepared to wear the volatility, I think you are better off doing that uh, and investing in it. It's got higher long-term potential. In my opinion, I could be wrong, 100% wrong. Uh, I own units in the Vanguard Australian Shares ETF, by the way. Uh, so I am I am not biased because it doesn't matter whether you buy it or not. The great thing about an ETF is <laughs> my, my recommendation otherwise doesn't move the price. It's set by the market. Uh, but yes, I, I think it's I think it's worth thinking at least about moving some new money into the VAS Vanguard Australian Shares Fund. Uh, if not selling the other one, but if you want to sell the other one too, I wouldn't have an issue with it. Again, though, I will repeat as always, we can't give you personal advice. That's my thoughts about the two ETFs and the strategy. Ram, it's got bonds in it. Did you say? Yeah, and cash. I mean, how is that high growth? Well, it's higher growth than bonds and cash because it's got the high growth investments in it. Yeah, it's one of those. I know. I agree. With you. I don't get I it. I don't get it. Well, I, it's it's funny too. Even, even Vanguard puts it in their balanced category. Right. Um, I, it, yeah, is it high growth? Well, it's high growth and not. So I guess you know it's it's all that sort of stuff. Um, let me just quickly scroll through. So here's the thing. Uh, I'll really quickly read this one. And by the way, speaking of overlapping, one third of the ETF is in the Vanguard Australian Shares Index. 26% is in the International Shares Index. I will say quickly while I go through this, high growth is what this would be called if it was in a in a super fund, right? So it's got the same terminology. It's kind of that uh -huh. idea of uh -huh. more more growth assets, so it's higher growth. 16% um, international shares hedged, 7% in the Global Aggregate Bond Index, 
6% in the International Small Companies Fund, 5% emerging markets, 3% Australian fixed interest. So it's about 10% bonds and fixed interest. Um, Like it's not terrible, but just almost by definition, you, you shouldn't expect because of that, this to do as well as an ETF that didn't have that in it. Again, quickly, only one third of this is Australian shares. So you could take the view that if the two thirds that aren't Australian shares outperform, then it's more diversified than just the Australian shares index. So again, to your question, if you wanted international exposure, don't swap this for the VAS and assume it's the same product. It's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will be, you know, there's different components and at sometimes bonds will do better than shares. At sometimes international shares will do better than Australian. And so there's no reason this fund may not outperform Australian shares over the very long term if international shares do a heap of heavy lifting. But given it's already one third Australian, bo- Australian shares and 10% bonds, I think the odds of that are probably not massive. But bear in mind, this is more diversified than the Australian shares ETF. Go on, Ray. Yeah, I'd, I'd make the point too that, I mean, again, all the usual caveats and disclaimers, but you know, a 37-year-old man investing in bonds and cash, like it's just, that they are, they're guaranteed losers over the long term. Like, yep. guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> At best, maybe all the but, all but all but you know we shouldn't, yeah. It's probably it's probably possible bond bond prices go up a lot and maybe maybe shares have a sucky fifteen yeah, years. I mean, that, look, I, no, nothing's guaranteed. Only just very for our good own, point. Yeah, just just for the purposes of making sure we don't we don't give absolutes when they're not. But yeah, it's it's all but I agree with you. Yeah, well, if if, if bonds are going to do well for you, it's only because yields have gone through the roof. Mm. Uh, sorry, that yields yields have fallen through the floor, and there's probably a whole bunch of other issues there at play as well. So, it's your sort of the, the, these instruments. The, the great thing about cash and mm. cash equivalents, as they're called, is they're, they're just they're liquid. They're going to be there when you need it, and you can spend it because you can't spend your, your shares in Woolworths or something something like that. But you just you just suffer inflation. And yes, you can look at it in real terms, but generally speaking, it's kind of a wash, and they just tend to be a massive chain around your ankle. Uh, over the long term, or because you were trying to dodge a little bit of volatility, yeah. but guess what? You're going to face a bunch <laughs> yeah. of volatility yeah. anyway. So it just, yeah, right. it just, it sort of, it, it sounds, it's like so much in our industry, it sort of sounds like it makes sense. It sounds reasonable. On deeper reflection, anyone with a more than a 10 year, certainly investment horizon, it's just a dead weight around around your ankle, I, I think. And in, in the scenarios where it ends up being great to have have those allocations, it's there's probably a hell of a lot else going on in the world <laughs> that's going yeah, to that's, that's right. going to make it all pretty unappealing anyway. So, that's right. um, it, remember too when when these product manufacturers are talking about risk, they're not talking about risk in the way that you or I would talk about risk. Mm-hmm. They're, they're talking about volatility, and volatility is just the the price you pay for long term outperformance. And just it just yes, shares are super volatile, but plot it plot any developed market on an annual basis that volatility disappears and it goes bottom left to top right that's just this is how it is and i don't want to look back in 30 years time after a hard life of (laughs) of of working and saving and realize just to try and be a little bit clever over the short term i actually ended up costing myself which could really very easily be very substantial amounts of money you know just due to the power of 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 compounding so you know each each their own see a financial planner blah 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 but I, I certainly, I would certainly urge you to consider why you would want exposure yes. to that. Dividends, uh, you could maybe also. I, I know you said you're a dividend investor. I mean, that's that's not terrible, particularly if if um, you just need the cash, or if you're reinvesting it, because that that's where you can sort of kick that compounding along. But uh, yeah, I, I'd so also as it, go with it too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's no, there's no there's no wrong moves there, to, so to speak. But I I think for someone who's multi decades away. From from retirement, I would personally be a bit more focused on growth, or at least more growth heavy. The trouble, and the one thing, I, sorry, one more thing with the, with the VAS, and this is going to sort of reveal some of my prejudice, prejudices. <laughs> but you meant you mentioned it before. It's just like mm. it is. If for whatever reason, and I don't want to get into the, the debate, but mm-hmm. the Australian banks get into trouble, that whole thing is going to suffer. And um, it's just it's such a significant weighting. It's not as diversified as we've mentioned before as, as it, it might seem on the surface. Very high correlations in that. Absolutely. I, um, yes, yeah, so I, I wanted to, uh, yes, I wanted to give a, you, you did a, uh, a sell job on, on Friday. By the way, I assume strawman.com is still open for new members as of uh, today, The so. plan was to close it on Sunday evening and unless we had, a, we had a quota. So we, we, we're pretty small and we like to keep it small because just because of <laughs> practical reasons because we do focus on small caps. So there's sort of liquidity issues and 
But it's oh, just a bit better to have a tighter group, in my one. opinion. Um, there's less, less noise and all the, the rubbish that goes with the usual platforms. So, but yeah, yeah, well, we we are hopefully still open and um, go to the website. And you can check it out. Enough of a plug for you because I want to plug me. Um, <laughs> uh, we're talking about ETFs and I was going to do it on Friday. I completely forgot you were supposed to remind me, Ram, but I'm going to pick it up today. Uh, speaking of ETFs, the Vanguard Diversified High Growth ETF is not a recommendation of Motley Fool ETF Investor. This is a absolute straight out plug. Um, I, I, let, let, me list, let me just pull the curtain back. 29 bucks a year. 29 bucks a year. Uh, we have a portfolio of ETFs. If you're looking to invest in ETFs, you want to build an ETF portfolio that takes into account things like the sorts of ETF, the sorts of international versus domestic exposure, uh, all that kind of stuff. You want to understand what we think you should do with your money, where you should put it. We are going to do exactly that. We do already do exactly that with ETF Investor. 29 bucks a year, seriously. Like it's just the cheapest thing ever. Don't do it instead of Strawman. Do it as well. Uh, don't do it instead of another Motley Fool service. Do it as well. Um, it's just, I think... I'm, I'm really proud of it. it we've made it stupid cheap we're not gonna we're not gonna make any money off this one if you like it you like us you join another service we might make a few bucks out of that um but this one is just because it's the right thing to do because you know a whole lot of people want etf advice um and we want to put together a portfolio that we are proud of and that we like and we think is really really easy to follow for people who are dollar cost averaging so you're such a, you're such, you're dot, s- oh, so, sorry i interrupted the, the, the address i was, I was just, I was just my, gonna my, say feel. you're such feel. you guys are the fool you're such mugs like don't you what do you do i need to spell it out for you what you want to do is start a fund give it a really <laughs> the motley <laughs> fool high max yield maximizer <laughs> diversified, diversified low risk oil and then you want to charge two percent management expense ratio on that like, exactly you, exactly you're doing it all wrong well, 2.9% if you have $1,000 any more than that you're, you're making a fortune yep. uh, go to fool.com.au forward slash and it's join ETF investor hyphen join dash ETF dash investor join ETF investor um, you can join up for 29 bucks it's stupidly cheap um, I I, I'm really proud of it because it's cheap. I'm proud of it because of the work we've done to put it together. Um, we do a lot of explaining as to what's good and bad about ETFs, why we like these particular ones that we've recommended. Um, so yeah, a massive, massive shameless plug because uh, I really like the product. We have a lot of other products as well, obviously, but um, if you just want to get started with ETFs, this is I, I just think it's, you know, we could have priced it a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or whatever. Um, we just want to make it cheap so everyone can access it. And particularly if you're listening and you've got friends or family, young people in particular, uh, it's it's supposed to be an accessible price for them. So if you're just starting out, it's not going to break the bank to join. You can get some advice, get some education, and then potentially consider buying the ETFs we recommend. You don't have to, by the way. We don't manage your money. We just it's a membership, right? We, you get you get access to the publication. Uh, the rest looks after itself. So that's what it is. That's why we do it. Uh, and I just want to mention that because I think it's worth uh, hopefully worth giving a shout out because of it. Nice, mate. One last question from Tom, who says, "Hi Scott and Andrew, I love the idea." of dividend reinvestment plans, speaking of dividends, to automate my investing, especially for ETFs like the ASX 200 ETF. If they're taken up by investors, though, are these new shares that are created diluting their investment? Do you factor these into your evaluation of companies? Do you prefer companies that don't offer DRP? I noticed that Brickworks and Solpats do not offer this option for investors and thought this could be a likely reason. I have a feeling you will say you don't always elect to take up the DRP as this may not always be the best use of capital at the time of issue. But just wanted to understand how they work. Cheers, Tom. Tom, you are dead right. That's exactly why I don't use DRPs. I own 20-ish companies. Uh, The chance that I want to put money into every one of those 20 companies in proportion to their dividends is very, very small. But I also love love DRPs for those investors who don't care enough. So I, I actually, you know, for, again, a bit like a bit like ETFs generally. DRPs are great if you like this business. If you're going to dollar cost average into it, if you don't want the hassle, you just want to make sure you automate your investing. The money always gets reinvested. You don't spend it on something else. Uh, you know, it's it's super super easy. And as Andrew said, you know, don't let don't let perfect be the enemy of good. DRPs are great for most people. If you like them, you want to use them. Knock yourself out. Absolutely do it. Yep. Um, automating your investing is a wonderful way to take advantage of some of those behavioral nudges, right? It, it, it's, it's a sensational idea. Um, I don't do it because I want the cash and I want to then use that cash the way I select it. I think that's technically, theoretically better. Um, but if I was someone who didn't do it often enough, didn't want to do it, just was happy with the companies I owned, didn't want to think about it, it can be a spectacularly good idea. Ram? Yeah, I think it especially makes sense, as the listener said, with an ETF 
you know, because I'm just, yes, I'm right. just being passive here. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really just want to maximize my total return. Reinvesting that's going to help compounding kick along. So yeah, I, absolutely. I think, I think it makes, I think it makes a huge amount of sense. Um, I, I like, I quite don't. I'm trying to think. Oh yeah, there are. There's a couple of companies that do pay me dividends, but certainly not, <laughs> not enough to do much <laughs> with. But I, I, I know that when I was more focused in that area, I took the mm. cash. And then yep. used. Speaking of portfolio weighting, it's a nice way to help reweight things, just by taking all that dividend income after you know d- during a certain payment period and just allocating it to something that you feels a bit underweight but you still really like mm-hmm. is a is a nice way to to do that. But yeah, there's look, it's 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 hard to go too wrong just by doing a simple DRP. The other question of do the shares get created mm-hmm. out of thin air mm-hmm. or are they bought on market? is both um it depends um some companies <laughs> some companies buy it back i think that's the best way right mm-hmm. because it uh, otherwise it's dilution from the company's point of view uh it's better to create the shares because on one well, i've got one liability here that i've owed scott 100 bucks in dividends i can give 100 dollars out of the bank account or i can give him 100 dollars worth of shares that i just create and everyone sort of collectively pays for that with a tiny bit of of dilution and it's probably not going to be a massive swing factor over all, but I I I far prefer the ones that that have the treasury stock, as it's called. They buy it up and then they they re, redistribute it, and because you can save on yep. brokerage as well with that, which is which is really not much of a deal these days because it's already so low. But it's another another factor. Yep, I think that's right. I um yeah with the ETFs, I don't know. Do you know what the what? I guess it depends again. But I is is I suspect they probably create the units in that in, instance. Yeah, ETFs ETFs are weird because they own the underlying assets anyway, mm. in proportion to the money invested. So ETFs work really really differently to shares. You can have an unlimited number of ETF units, and each time your unit is created, they simply use that to buy more shares in the company. Uh, and so the ETF gets money from the companies as their as their cash flow. They normally pay them to you. They use that money instead to buy more units in those more shares in those same companies. And, and so it, I'm ninety eight and a half percent sure um, they just they, they buy more companies because that's what the ETF is. They have no way of diluting themselves because each has a, each unit of an ETF is the equivalent of the underlying assets it owns. Um, so it, it must by definition. Whereas a company can effectively dilute the underlying asset it owns. If you have 100 shares and you, you do a DRP for another one share, every every share goes from being zero, sorry, 1% of the company to 0.99% of the company or whatever it is. Mm. Um, whereas ETFs can't do that by definition because they have to be the equivalent of the underlying assets. So they use the cash flow they would have otherwise paid you to buy more shares in those companies and then give you the unit that, you, that they've created as a result. Yep. Uh, but yeah, ETFs are weird because ETF can, if an ETF doubles in size, it just literally creates twice as many units, but no one's diluted because it owns twice as many assets. So it's almost exactly, you know, dollar for dollar. Uh, and same, by the way, if you redeem, if you sell your ETF units, uh, you can sell them, to, I, I can sell mine to Andrew or I can sell it back to the market maker effectively and they would just sell those BHP shares, Woolly shares and CSL shares and give me the money that's generated from it. So that's that's kind of how it works. Yeah, and, and just one thing to be, it's a small point, but even if you reinvest the dividend Dividends, it's still a tax event. You still pay tax at whatever your rate is for the dividend that you receive. The fact that it was reinvested yeah. on your behalf, and now you've just got a different um, per- a buy price or capital base for those for those particular units. Correct, but you correct. still will wear that tax ob- obligation either way, whether it's cash or reinvested. But it's just worth making that point. And and by the way, speaking of tax obligation, you you owe the income tax on the dividend, but you also then have to manage the paperwork of the price you paid in air quotes mm. for those new shares. So when you go to sell them, if you had 20 shares in company A in 980 and you'd done the DRP for the last 42 years, twice a year, there's 84 different transactions you've made since, each with their own cost base. When you sell those f- final shares, uh, you've got to make sure you track the cost base for all those shares on the way through. So wow. just just keep that in mind. Um, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that painful. It's, it's easy. You have to keep it ahead of it. You don't try and catch up on 40 years of it after the fact. Yeah. Um, but just be, just be mindful. You have to do that. So if you bought the first 100 shares at, you know, I don't know, Four dollars a share, and then you bought the next. The DRP was at four dollars ten. The next one was at three eighty. The next one was at four sixty. Next one was at four twenty. Next one was at five dollars. You just got to keep that in. You got to keep track of that, so you can work out your cost base when it comes to capital gains tax. When it comes to shilling things, mate, I got to squeeze one in here. It's not actually I'll for my for my company, to. but uh, I knew you were going we to. we are an affiliate partner of uh, ShareSite. And they, they do that. They basically import all your trades and capital restructures and events and stuff. So basically. Once it's all plugged in, it'll just work all that out for you. And I, I think you know, it depends on the, the the services you have. But I think it's it's what is it? 
200 bucks a year or something. But honestly, if you're, if you've got a lot of these things going on, come tax time, you'll be so glad that you did. And the reason, (laughs) and again, I know this is shameless, but if if you go to strongman.com and then you'll see the blog uh, link up the top there, there's, you'll find an article, I think on the homepage, it gives you a discount code with strongman. And um, I, yeah, I'm a user and so it's the only other product, outside product that we support. Um, just because I'm, I'm just such a fan of it for that reason, because you you click a report button at the end and all of that stuff just either goes to the accountant or you fill it in yourself. It's super easy. And in case you're worried about Andrew selling his soul for a couple of dollars from a share site, let me add that I am a user who has to pay full price, God damn it, and I still <laughs> give him a rap because I completely agree with you. Um, it, it's I used to use an Excel spreadsheet, which was fine. Um, and if you want, I, I could have left it at that. The ability spreadsheets work great. Site. Yeah, they, they, you don't oh, need this. Yeah. I don't want to be clear on but that. Yes, yeah. But yes, no, but, but I was going to say my point is that I, I moved across to share site. I've never regretted it. It's it's not cheap. It's more much more expensive than Motley Fool ETF investor. Cheap, cheap plug, uh, but uh, but it's it's worth it for me. If you have a, if you have a half complex um, set of long term investments, or you have a portfolio large enough to justify the price, and you may not, and in which case use a spreadsheet. But um, definitely check them out at least. Decide whether it's right for you at the, at the given price. I get zero from it. Andrew might get something if you use his blog link. I get zero, um, but uh, either way, it, it's it's just a good product. As, as Andrew says, he does it because it's a good product. I'm happy to wrap it for, for free because it's a good product. Um, so well, well worth a look. Yeah, it just saves a lot of pain, basically. I shouldn't say this, it's but so, this is like they, so they could double my price of my subscription. Yeah, like, exactly. yeah, I'll go, oh, buggy you, but I'll pay it because I just, oh my. I, I, you know, it's one I, of those I, yeah. It's like one of those lessons you have once because I think the first time, I just, I'm ashamed to admit this, but when I was a younger man, I just didn't do my taxes for a couple of years. I just, right. just lazy. And then by the time right. I got around to it, I was ready to, oh, you know, it, it was bang my head against the wall. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, yep. with, especially with reinvestments and share splits and, oh, my God, what a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. The tax Especially system really like could it, be improved, by the way. Yeah, it, it, yes, it could. Uh, it creates, um, you can see the dividends you were paid. You can see the, the tax stuff you do. Um, you also do things like look at um, the, the tax circumstance of some of your current holdings. If you come to the end of June and you want to sell some shares that you're currently behind on to offset some capital gains, you can do that. Um, so it, it's, it's got a couple of little cool little neat features. It does also uh, just portfolio tracking performance-wise. You can see how well you're doing as an investor and whether that's worth continuing with. So, yep, lots of, lots of good features. That's enough of them. Mate. We've talked you may, they, they need to pay us a sponsorship fee for this podcast Thanks after that. That's, that. That was shameful. You you, you've, you've got a guy there. You speak to him. Yeah, I'll, have, I'll have a word. All right, deal. Otherwise, uh, if you're not, no, I'm kidding. Uh, we, we're probably done, mate. We're in an hour and six minutes, according to my timer. Uh, it's been a good couple of episodes. A good hit out, I reckon. Some good questions. Uh, a good episode on Friday. I'm feeling pretty energized about stuff. Uh, but... We still have to wait until next Friday for the next one. Will you join me then? I will. I will. I just, when you're saying that, I, I was mindful, like right from when we started, I think there was always a plan to be a 45 minute episode because we thought, <laughs> thought that was about long enough for a dry topic. Oh, dude, dude. People who've been around forever know that the first ones are about 20, 25 minutes. Yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Well over we an hour talk. each time. And, and uh, thanks if you've made it this far, I guess. <laughs> I will echo that. That's a very, very good point. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. Thank you for the questions. I'm not going to give you the socials. That takes another 30, 40 seconds and you don't want that. But you know how to get to us. Please do. And until next week, full on. See ya. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services Licence 400691.